during apartheid in South Africa, Desmond Tutu was always accused of being too happy. You know Desmond Tutu, right? Have you ever seen a picture of the man? He's got this sort of smile, this smirk, constantly plastered on his face. His first instinct in life seems to always just be to laugh or to smile. For context, remember the Lion King. It's rumored that Rafiki, the wise old sage, everybody have Rafiki in their head, and the movie is supposedly um, modeled after the spirit and mannerisms of Desmond Tutu. Always smiling, always laughing like he knows something that the rest of us don't know. And this got Desmond Tutu in all kinds of trouble during apartheid. It drove both sides crazy. Those people that he was fighting with thought that his mannerisms didn't express the sincerity and the severity of their cause. If you keep laughing the way you are through this whole thing, no one's ever going to take us seriously. Meanwhile, on the other side of the equation, those he was struggling against just thought his indefatigable spirit was just so exhausting. What does it take to break this man? Why is he always smiling? Both sides are unhappy with Desmond's joy. Finally, when asked, Desmond, why are you always so happy? Why are you so happy in the midst of all this struggle? He would always smile, and he would respond and say, I'm smiling because I know how the story ends. If you've noticed this sort of smirk also on the church's face throughout this past series on the Apostles' Creed, it's because of what we come to today. We know how this thing ends, this whole story, the creed, our faith, our lives. All through the creed, there's been this sort of smile plastered on the face of the church as we've wrestled with all the tenets of the faith that are tightly compacted into this creed, as we've wrestled with what it means to be God as Father, as we wrestled with the masculinity of that language and what to do with that as God the Creator, and as we sang our Christmas carol and talked about God incorporating Mother Mary into this story too, and all the mighty acts of salvation, and as we watched ourselves crucify Jesus, and as we waited in anticipation for him to come back and judge our lives. You remember that part? All the way through, even through the valley of the shadow of death, there's been this smirk across the church's face, as though the church, you, along with Rafiki, Desmond, know something that the rest of the world doesn't know. We taunted the White House even by pledging that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and her dove, and not the GOP and her elephant, and not the DNC and her donkey. We believe in the Spirit and the Church. And all the while, even in the midst of that tenacious struggle, we've been laughing our way through it. We should have been if we weren't. Because of today... Today we get to the end of the creed. 
And the creed ends with these two words, life everlasting. The creed ends with life. A few years back, I was hanging out with my god, um, goddaughter, god-cousin, I don't really know what you call her, um, Charlotte, and she's, she was about three years old at this time. Her and her mom decided that we were going to take her to see her first movie. And we decided to, that we were going to go see Hotel Transylvania. I don't know if you've seen that. Parents, maybe. Um, so it's this, it was this new animated picture at the time about Count Dracula and how Count Dracula builds this exclusive hotel for all the monsters um, so that they could get away from all the evil humans that are trying to chase after them and kill them. And um, it was fun. I mean, it, we did the research on it. We, we, did, we went online and we realized it wasn't going to be too scary. We wanted to make sure that it wasn't too scary for her. We got our popcorn and we're running late for the movie and we enter in when it's already dark in the room and as we're walking down the aisle, the scariest part of the whole movie at the very beginning is on the screen and Dracula um, turns beet red and just roars and the entire theater kind of reverberates. And my little three-year-old god cousin said, Michelle is the end going to be scary too? Hmm. Apparently, knowing how the story ends can help you get through all sorts of dark and scary places. That's what Desmond was smirking about through apartheid. That's why the church can smile on Good Friday, right? That's why no matter what valley of the shadow of death we come to, no matter what Dracula life is on the screen in front of us, no matter how noisy life is reverberating around us, no matter who is around us turning beet red, the church can have this smirk because we know how the story ends. This same belief runs through all of scripture, by the way. It doesn't matter what genre of text you come to, what time or location it happened. It doesn't matter who penned those texts. They all have the same inexhaustible smirk across their faces. What's even more peculiar about this, though, is that smirk seems to remain even in the deepest valleys of death. In this morning's reading from Isaiah, Isaiah is in exile The temple is in ruins. Everything that Israel has ever been working for, their entire life's project, is gone. Babylon has come in and wiped it out, taken them into captivity. And Isaiah is sitting there, a POW in his hole, death all around him. And all of a sudden, this smirk kind of comes across his face. And he says, an angel of the Lord comes to him and gives him this message. See, I'm, I'm about to make a new heaven and a new earth. God is coming to wipe away all fear, every tear. God is coming to break people out of bondage and set people free. No one will ever have to build a house and have someone else live in the house that they built. That was good news if you're imprisoned in someone else's camp. Isaiah, through his poetic presence, starts uttering the end of the story. And all of Israel breaks into this kind of smile as they know that they can withstand what they're experiencing. 
Same thing with John, the gospel writer of our passage today. I don't know if you knew this. He also wrote the book of Revelation. Everybody familiar with that? John is, during the time of of Revelation, the book of Revelation, he's in exile as well. He's a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Rome has come and put him in prison because he's been preaching that Jesus is a heck of a lot more important than Caesar. Oops, (laughs) that'll get you in trouble. And now John is in prison, and Christians are, on, are running for their lives everywhere. And there, sitting on death row, Rafiki shows up. <laughs> you didn't know Rafiki was in the Bible. You've never heard that part of the Bible, right? You can almost hear John's giggle at this point. John says an angel came to him and said, I'm about to build a new heaven and a new earth. Huh, sounds familiar. I see the river of life running right through the middle of the city and the tree of life offering healing to the nations. Apparently, knowing the end of the story can help you get through all kinds of dark and scary places. Matthew begins his gospel by telling us that he's going to bring us good news. And so we read the pages voraciously, waiting to get to the good news. We keep watching Jesus get in more and more trouble, though, stirring up more and more trouble. And his disciples get in more and more trouble until finally at the end, we find ourselves standing in a graveyard. And there in that space of despair and death comes that familiar, indefatigable, divine smile Death doesn't have the last word. Tears will not be the last taste in your mouth. Wailing will not be the last thing your ears hear. Despair will not survive this sort of life. All of scripture testifying to this. Apparently, that seemed to be good news. Knowing the end of the story can get you through all kinds of things. Some of you worry about me a whole lot and constantly check up on me. And I I love it. I love that you check up on me. I love that you pray for me. I'm so glad you do. Um, I need it. But you check up on me a whole lot (laughs) because you know that in my inbox, chances are when when, when emails chime in, it's not, really always, it's not really about good news normally, right? I think that's probably why you check up on me. My inbox rarely chimes with someone who is happy. It's true. Um, sometimes it's the news of someone who's unhappy with things we're doing in the church. Or it's a financial report that gets sent to me that seems really daunting, Or it's another excuse from another person whose attendance is waning and hasn't given, who promised they would. Or it's the holy burden of prayer requests that come in that seem like, how in the, what do I do with this? How in the world do I swallow this? Or it's the holy knowledge of someone who's in the hospital or battling cancer or struggling with mental illness. Or it's the kind of the watching somebody self-destruct in front of you and not knowing what to do. And some of you worry about me, and I always appreciate that kind of head tilt. How are you? Like, I I get that a lot. Um, 
some of you will ask me, aren't you exhausted? How do you do it? The, the building of a new church in addition to the regular care of a church. How do you deal with it? How do you have that kind of faith when things seem like they could just so easily unravel? And the short answer is, it's, it's not exhausting. Yes, it takes immense faith, but it's not my faith <laughs> that gets me through it. I can, I can laugh. A smirk comes across my face in that. When I laugh and think, <laughs> it's surely not my faith. It's not exhausting because to walk alongside this church, people who believe in everlasting life, I rarely ever stay in that pit of despair. So while it may happen for a short period, I rarely stay there. I watch resurrection happen all around me, all the time. For every complaint, a smirk comes across my face as I am reminded of the gift of having people who care enough to complain And the even greater gift of watching light bulbs come on in people's heads as they all of a sudden just get what we're about. For every daunting hurdle in the life of the church, a smirk comes across my face. And I'm surrounded by people who say to me, nothing is impossible, Michelle. Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. The people who just keep speaking that into my life, that's you all. And I begin to dream God-sized dreams again. I watch resurrection happen all the time. I've been with some of you, some people in our church who are in the hospital and get a diagnosis and say, well, life seems more precious now than it's ever been. You model life everlasting to me in ways I can't possibly understand. I've had coffee with you when you get that pink slip And you didn't know what you were going to do, how you were going to to sustain your life, your, your financial situation. And I've sat there with you as you eventually started realizing that, hey, all I have to do is pray. And God will provide daily bread, just enough. And somehow it seemed like good news to you all of a sudden. What was despair became eternal life. And I've sat with couples who are on the break of divorce, on the brink of divorce when they're in that awful kind of Good Friday moment. And I've watched them join hands and begin to breathe Easter into their marriage again and say, I'm sorry and I forgive you. And it's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I can't stay in despair long. I know it. I know that sooner or later, that same smile is going to come across your face. No matter what Good Friday you find yourself in, that's what eternal life looks like. As I prepared for this sermon today, I thought, do I talk about heaven? Do I talk about hell? Do I talk about what life after death looks like today? And Trinity Sunday became an example for me. I thought, I could try to explain it. Or I could just show how it, it just shows up everywhere. It shows up everywhere. This, what we've talked about today, that smirk that comes across your face in the moments where smirk should not exist. That's eternal life. That's what eternal life looks like. That's what life everlasting looks like here and now.
And taking a page out of Trinity, out of this mystery, I say, let's just stop there today. Because truthfully, you and I don't need to know what heaven looks like. But we do need to know what eternal life looks like right here in our lives as we experience despair, as we watch people around us get diagnosed with cancer, uh, as we have relationships fall apart around us. And so the mystery of God's love is that we know the end of the story. And that can get us through a heck of a lot of stuff.